You're listening to the Ones Ready Podcast, a team of Air Force Special Operators forged in combat with over 70 years of combined operational experience, as well as a decade of selection instructor experience. If you're tired of settling and you want to do something you truly believe in, you're in the right place. Now here's your favorite CCT personality, JTAC extraordinaire, embracer of the ridiculous face, and like the shortest operator you'll ever meet, Peaches. Do you guys like good gear, good quality gear that'll get you where you need to go? I know I do. Check out EberlyStock.com. They have an entire range of rucksacks and apparel that'll help you, whether it's military, law enforcement, or even hunting. Uh, I particularly like the F1 mainframe because I like to load that thing down and I can swap out different rucks and throw it onto the frame and then just attach it. Uh, I also have the switchblade too, which is a nice little three-day ruck that'll get me going where I need to go. So great quality stuff, veteran owned. Uh, the owner is a prior Air Force A-10 pilot, a great company. We really enjoy working with these folks because they, like I said, they produce some quality gear um, and it's definitely worth your time going to check them out. And if you do that and you decide to check out, use the promo code OR10, that is OR10, and it'll get you a discount on all of their gear. And they've got rucksacks, apparel, among a whole bunch of other things. So definitely go check them out, eberlystock.com. Hey everybody, welcome back to the One's Ready Podcast. You're in the team room. You got Aaron and I again. And uh, man, it just seems like we're just crushing this content, but uh, <laughs> we'll keep it, keep it going. These early mornings, I mean, it's still dark out, dark and rainy out in the Pacific Northwest. You gotta love it. <laughs> yeah, it's actually uh, it's actually rainy out here too. They're, they're thinking they might get snow. So we're actually, uh, you're not supposed to do this on podcasts or media content, but we're <laughs> doing this on Christmas Eve. Uh, it's actually, it looks like it's going to snow out. So we'll see. It might be a white Christmas here in Albuquerque. Could be. Yeah. Could be. Well, I, I tell you what, we're, uh, <laughs> we're, man, this is so random for the podcast, but we were watching YouTube, Donna and I, and uh, it was Holmes in Las Vegas, you know, and it's just seeing all the sun was just like, wow. Yeah. That's what wow. I forgot what this is like. <laughs> wow, exactly, right? Yeah. Yeah. But that's actually not what we came here to talk about today. Um, this is going to be one of a series, whether this is number one or this is number two, I'm, I'm not sure, but um, it's part of a series that we're kind of doing um, that a three part series, maybe more, maybe we'll figure out some more, but um, based off of the special tactics mission sets. So if you're tracking or if you're not tracking, you've got global access personnel recovery, and precision strike. Those are the three primary mission sets that special tactics do. We do, we go into some other realms as well, but these are like, if you were going to write a Wikipedia page on what we do, those are the three primary things we do. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that are inherent to those tasks. So today we're going to talk about personnel recovery with one by Aaron Love. So <laughs> as I introduce you to your own podcast. <laughs> Yeah, I, I just like one by Aaron Love. Like, yeah, <laughs> the old uh, goggles, sand, wind, and dust. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and for listeners, like I said, I don't know if this is going to be uh, number one, number two, number three, or whatever, but um, there is going to be some overlapping because all of these three mission sets really complement each other. Other and there's they overlap just like a Venn diagram. So, um, some of the stuff you will hear again. Um, but just bear with it, and and I, I 
promise you that there's probably going to be little nuggets that Aaron or I put in here that we just didn't think about the last one. So, and this is also not an all-encompassing, you know, there are other aspects that we 100% either forgot, forgot to mention, or we probably can't just due to some operational security and not busting any kind of classification. So, with that said, personnel recovery, in your own words, Aaron, go. All right, easy post. So personal recovery inside of the Air Force. This is, I'm going to start off with, with something that is completely unique about Air Force Special Operations. So pararescue and, and personnel recovery, all the forces are actually supposed to be able to do their own personnel recovery, right? We have nine tenants of soft. This is a, a doctrinal thing. One of those tenants is direct action. These are just things that we do, right? Inside of direct action is personnel recovery, right? There's a whole joint pub on it. All the services are supposed to be able to do it. Like if the army loses somebody or something and they need to get it back, the army is supposed to be able to fix their own problems. In the Air Force, pararescue and combat rescue officer, like the pararescue career field, our personnel recovery um, entire enterprise, we're the only people that in the DOD that are specifically trained, equipped, employed, and deployed to do personnel recovery as a primary mission set for the entire time, right? So pararescue and combat rescue officers since 1966, when we put on that maroon beret and we had our own force, right? We we evolved from the air, uh, aerial rescue and recovery services. And we used to be back enders on, on helicopters. And we went through Vietnam and, and we've evolved to where we are now. But personal recovery is a very simple thing. It's we are there to bring anybody home or anything home. Like sometimes it's sensitive equipment. Sometimes it's a person. Sometimes um, it's whatever, you know, it's an allied force member. Sometimes it's an American civilian. We are there to bring anybody home at any time in any situation. So personal recovery, it is a, a soft tenant. It's a soft skill set. Uh, and I say soft as in special operations forces, but we are the only people to do it 24-7 here inside of the Air Force. And then inside of AppSoc, we have our own capability for personal recovery. Poof, there we are. PJs at uh, RQSs and ST making the personal recovery mission happen for the Air Force. So, um, you know, we'll start there, but it's, it's really, it's anytime, anywhere, uh, by any means necessary, we're going to access an area. So that's why everybody looks at us and like, oh, you guys are, it's so cool that you're free fall qualified and dog qualified. And you do all these, you work in extreme environments, like true Arctic environments and the jungle and the desert. Well, yeah, because things happen all over the world. And now when you're talking about space, oh, we go into space, baby. I've said it a bunch of times, like that domain is coming up and we're figuring out how to, how to go to space as well. And, and then we have the support of the NASA mission as well. So we have all of those things uh, that we do for personal recovery and poof, there you are. PJs, personal recovery. Man, um, you're lobbying hard for the, to be the first, you know, low earth orbit free. I want it so too. bad. It's, it's the only reason I'm staying in shape, man. Like I could, I could really hang this up and get a desk job somewhere, but I gotta be honest with you, that space mission, it's so enticing. Yeah, yeah. I, no, I'm with you, and you definitely need a controller on that too. Just yeah, yeah. <laughs> PJs can't work the radio, so you know, just uh, <laughs> something. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, you're telling me a PJ can't work the radio? They're peep. They need to focus on medicine. Let yeah, me exactly. have the radio. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, one of the things that you hear about often, kind of that, it, and it's to me, it's an old, um, you know an old acronym and an old name, but uh, CSAR, Combat Search and Rescue. So, you know, you guys still are doing Combat Search and Rescue in some regards, correct? Yeah, exactly. So PR, personal recovery, is kind of the overarching term for everything we do, right? So personal recovery is the entire enterprise that are doing, um, you, you know, we're talking about a rescue triad to include 
all aircraft inside the DOD inventory using everything at our disposal. Like PR is that overarching thing. When we talk about combat search and rescue, you know, that was a term that was put specific, that we specifically put, um, on ourselves, kind of, you know, the GWAT, you know, timeframe, like we perform combat search and rescue. And that's, that's the mission of, you know, going into hot LZs, going into contested denied environments and finding an isolated person in order to bring them back. And, and, you know, I kind of talked about it earlier, but you know, that, that can really be anybody, but the classic example of this is kind of the, you know, the pilot punches out behind enemy lines and, and we have to go through the five phases of recovery, right? Like, so it's um, report, locate, support, recover, reintegrate, right? Those are the five kind of things that we do. That's, that's no kidding what you, what, what you do there. And, um, you know, combat search and rescue is in that really like recover area. That's where you're actually going and getting the person and out. And if it's in a combat environment, perfect combat search and rescue. And you'll see there's other search and rescue forces out there. Like Navy has their SAR swimmers search and rescue. We just do it in combat, which sets us apart from everybody else. We're not, we're not rescue swimmers. We're not uh, in the Coast Guard. We're not AMTs. Like our, our job is combat. We are there to take people out of the worst possible environment, access that environment, whatever it is, and then bring them back. Right. So, and and that's one of the things that you guys, uh, I'd like to point out is that, you know, um, I think in one of the episodes that we talked uh, to Gutierrez and I think some other, other folks about was, you know, a QRF, a quick reaction force, right? That is a, a CSAR team, a, t- a traditional CSAR team, um, is, you know, two PJs, one controller. You could even, on the RQS side that don't have controllers, they're constructed a little bit differently, but it's still a small team. So a, a CSAR team is not a QRF. Um, are they extra guns to the fight? Can they bring, you know, force multiplication and, and help out in a fight? Absolutely. But they're, one thing they're not, at least as they are traditionally packaged, is not a QRF. Yeah, we're just not big enough to roll in and and bring you know that equipment. If we're if we're attached to a security team, we used to call it a SAR security team, a search and rescue security team. If we have an SST that's attached to us, and maybe we have a bigger force, sure we can we can protect ourselves and then we can we can get our mission. But yeah, we're not a quick reaction force. Um, doing reactive CSAR, like you mentioned, uh, it, it's essentially like the QRF is here. So here's a problem. Okay, well we need the QRF to come in. Well, if everything fails there and that you're like, hey, hey, Mary, we've lost somebody or, hey, somebody's really, really hurt. That's when you call the combat search and rescue team or that's when you call the PJs. So that's how reactive CSAR works is big problem. It's way outside of our control. Maybe we have an aircraft that went down. Maybe we have a, an extrication problem. Maybe somebody's trapped or maybe somebody's truly lost. Maybe somebody got left on the ground and we really don't know where they are. That's where we come in. Yep. Exactly. Um, but it's not limited to personnel. Like you brought up the, you know, the pilot, typical pilot punches out, um, behind enemy lines. Like that's one guy, but there's other aspects of, of it that you will go to. So when you're on, on a crash site and it's a sensitive crash site, you know, you've already recovered a pilot. What else are you doing? Well, so it comes into, we, we have equipment, technology, and things that we don't want to fall. We don't want to have those fall in enemy hands. So especially when you're start, you know, for the pilot, you know, we have manned and unmanned ISR assets, and there are pieces of equipment on board that aircraft that we do not want exploited by somebody to just pick it up. Because if you think, you know, especially if you're looking, you know, when we lose a drone in Afghanistan and GWAT, you know, they're going to go and, and take that drone and strip it, but they're looking to sell that technology. They want to take these things and they want to sell it to one of our competitors. So it's important for us to make sure that that technology doesn't fall into somebody else's hands. So we're doing things like making sure number one, that we're, we're making the aircraft safe uh, from munitions. And a lot of times that's where we'll ask, you know, some options there, like, Hey, 
there's a bunch of bombs on this thing. Uh, we're going to make sure that everybody's out and we're away from it. And then the controller is going to dip, blow it in place and call fires in on it. Right. But there are some other things like there's communication suites. There are sensor um, cameras and sensor balls, all of those things, you know, and this is not OPSEC. This is just common sense. All of the imagery, all of the information that those things are taken are housed on hard drives inside of that, inside of that airplane. They're housed on radios. They're housed in computers. We have to either take those with us or destroy them in place to make sure they can't be exploited by personal recovery. Remember that overarching umbrella. We think about that pilot punch out behind enemy lines where we have to get somebody back to friendly control. Sometimes that thing that's so important is actually a piece of equipment that we don't want uh, to fall into the wrong hands. So we've gone after, um, there are many um, good stories about uh, PJ teams getting spun up to both jump into the ocean to go get a drone to, you know, something crashed, you know, right out. There was a, a time in Iraq where, um, you know, something crashed right outside of base. And we were just like, oh, man, we got to go get this drone, you know, before one, before the civilians get it to it because it was armed. And then two, um, you know, before anybody else could exploit that stuff. Yeah. And a lot of, you know, the, the mindset is that a lot of these crashes, whether they're, you know, um, remote piloted the aircraft or, or they're, you know, pilots punching out. But, you know, you tend to think that they're happening way, way deep in enemy lines. But, you know, the most critical, you know, um, phase of flight, if you will, are takeoff and landings. Uh, believe it for, for all the folks that didn't know that most critical phase of flight is during takeoff and landing. So um, you'd be surprised how many of these recoveries actually take place a couple miles outside of base uh, yeah. where they took yeah. off from. Like, it's just the reality of it. Yeah, exactly. But um, so that's combat. Transition a little bit to the human, uh, humanitarian side of the house. Um, so Hatter events, humanitarian assistance, disaster relief. Um, what are some of the ways that personnel recovery really fit into, I mean, to me, the kind of obvious, like, hey, it's a Hatter event. There's going to be yeah. personnel recovery, post-hurricane, tornado, earthquake, you know, tsunami, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But like... What are some of the the things that uh, we would do in terms of personnel recovery in a Hatter event? Well, this is really interesting too because it's specific only to us. Like we we really are some of the only people to do this when we respond to a national event. So the easy ones are you know Hurricane Katrina. There were thousands of saves that the pararescue teams did down there. Um, you know, you look at the Haiti earthquake. So not only did we open the airfield in Haiti, but there were a, you know if you think about. Um, I think it was like 1988. So remember when the earthquake hit during the World Series and all the bridges collapsed in California? It was during the Oakland A's. So the PJ team from Moffat were actually out there cutting through concrete and searching for people. When you look at these tornadoes that just ripped through um, Kentucky, the PJ team was there searching for people. And that was a, a, an extreme collapse structure event, right? The searching an area and finding people. And then if you look really look at the pandemic from 2020 all the way till now, I believe there are PJs working around the clock at step down units in New York. So while that's not like a true Hatter event, these are things that we can provide because of our skill set, right? We're able to work alone without a doctor constantly looking over our shoulder because that's what we do in combat. And when you start looking at a Hatter event, so hurricanes, earthquakes, uh, you know, even even with this pandemic that w- that we were working through and, and, and all these other things, we provide a very unique skill set and we are highly valuable because of the autonomy. You don't need to tell us what to do a whole lot. We can look and go, oh, all these people are sick and I need to find a way to organize all of these people. Okay, I'm going to go do. Oh, there's 
a collapsed structure and you have no idea how to get in here, well, I have a bunch of tools and I have this specific training. I can access areas that you can't access. It makes us highly valuable in a hatter scenario. Um, you know, and, and that civilian mission. So the garden reserves always have a civilian mission. And we talked about it on one of the other ones, but we maintain an alert commitment. There's always a PJ team on there. And you know, it's a joke inside of the PJ community is if you just stick your head out of the window and yell loud enough, there's a PJ team that'll eventually come to you. Um, that's, that's really, I mean, it's funny, but it's, it's actually true. You know, there's, there's a team right now that's on worldwide alert, every single team in every single state, whether it's ACC or ST or guard or reserve, there's a team of PJs right now that are ready to go do stuff at a moment's notice. You know, we are constantly ready for that call, which is really cool. Like that's, that's one of the really cool parts of our career field is that, you know, right now here in Albuquerque, my friend, uh, chief Rubio, if chief Rubio was like, dude, we have a rescue that we need to go on. I, I'm, I'm like, Hey man, I, I might need a little bit of gear, but I'm ready. Let's go. You know, that's, that's a cool thing. And Hatter kind of falls into that area and it's inherent only to us. So these other, you know, SAR rescue swimmers and, and Navy, um, you know, Navy rescue swimmers or, or, you know, other, other people that, that do kind of jobs that sort of look the same. They don't have that. Um, they don't have that posture and they don't have that response. Yeah. And, you know, we do a whole multitude of things during that. You know, you're talking about airdrops for resupplies, medical supplies, food, water, um, even even if like, hey, the, the jaws of life broke, which is very rare, but, um, you know, extra batteries for the reciprocating saws, that kind of stuff like we will do airdrops for that. We'll do evacuations. We'll, we'll bring in more people, you know, on an airfield or on a helicopter or something like that. Get people out. So we've got the evacuation piece of it. Um, I already brought up supplies, you know, it's just getting people in and getting people out. And a lot of times, you know, with a, like a Haiti situation, you know, there's a lot of Americans that need to get out. Um, it's just reality. It's just reality of it. It's not, it's not like, Hey, that's your problem. We're, we're not involved in it because we're, we're there to help. Um, it's just, you know, when you start talking about department of state type stuff, like American citizens, um, they can have the option to stay, but oftentimes they've, they've just got to get out of there and let the, the, the local government handle their own business too. Right. Those are called non-combatant evacuation operations. And it's something that we train to, like we work with department of state. Like, so for NEOs is typically what we call them. We had a joke in the 321st, as you're well aware. Every spring, as soon as Africa started heating up, we were going to play to do an EO. You know what I mean? Like that's that's a, we have that specific skill set, and it's extremely extremely complex because there's people spread to the four winds. When I was in Africa, there's there are American citizens that lived all over Kenya, and there's essentially a big list that you get from the Department of State. And we're like, hey, if we need to flush everybody here for some reason, we have to get all these people together. Well, PJs are the people to do that. Like we do non-combatant evacuation operations. When you look at what happened in Hkaya. Who were the people on the ground that were making that happen in a real sense? The PJ team. You know what I mean? Like we have those things um, as part of our thing. We get hit all the time. You know, we're, we say that we're a jack of all trades. People forget uh, what that whole statement actually is. A jack of all trades um, is better than a master of one, essentially. We love uh, the fact that we have all of these skill sets. So it's a funny thing in the soft community to be like, oh, every PJ is a jump master. Every PJ does Neo. Every PJ does this. Every PJ does that. Well, you guys aren't good at any one thing. Well, yeah, but we're great at a whole bunch of things because we need to be able to, every single PJ, like when you're a team leader, you need to be able to throw anything out of a plane on time, on target, safely to support operations on the ground, whether that be a non-combatant evacuation operation, whether it be a hurricane response or whether it be true combat. Yep, absolutely. Um, and man, I, I kind of 
screwed us a little bit um, just because I'm jumping all over the place here. Going going back to a deployed situation real quick. Um, when we do key leader engagements and stuff like that, and we go into a a village to meet people and, and provide you know food, water, human, humanitarian stuff in a deployed environment, um, what are you guys doing from a from a medical standpoint? So nobody says no to medicine. That's the easiest way to gain hearts and minds to win that human terrain. So you have to really study up on that clinical medicine. You really have to get your game together. That's not our that's not our lane. You know, like that's it's definitely more of a civil affairs lane when we talk about medical civil affairs programs or med caps. But when we go to these places, you can actually win a ton of things over just by going inside of their medical medical facilities and saying, hey, this is good or this is bad or let us help you with this. And and then the fact that they know, you know, a lot of times they'll they'll call you doctor and whatever else. And we're obviously not doctors. Not a doctor. Um, <laughs> not not a doctor. Um, yeah, not, not even close. And, you know, when you look at an 18 Delta or somebody that really is just completely focused on some of those clinical medicine or some of those far forward indigenous medicine types, like, yeah, I, I would never say that we're on bar with that, but we do provide that capability to support what it is that we need to do, right? Uh, working in concert with those people, we can be that far forward uh, medical provider, or at least put a face, a medical face um, to a tactical operation. Yep. Absolutely. So um, the next kind of three things I want to hit and, and we'll, we'll start off, but in my mind, these are kind of things that PJs really, really excel at. I mean, you know, you guys are great at doing all the other stuff, um, you know, which there's history of that. So I don't need to revisit it, but like when I think, and I try to describe, you know, what is a PJ compared to an 18 Delta or a, or a SEAL Corpsman or something like that. Like these are the three things that I go, this is it. So one of them is high angle rescue. Can you go over what high angle rescue is? Sure. Yeah. So anytime you're talking about high angle, so it, it's literally just like there's definitions of, of what it is like medium angle, I think is up to like, it's like 30 to 45 degrees or something. And then high angle is anything that is technically challenging above like a 45 degree angle. Right. So Typically, what we're referring to there is um, any terrain that is so steep that you need to be roped in. So you need to like rope and, and climb through things like you can't just like walk up it. Um, so high angle rescue and that, that roped rescue or that mountain rescue thing is typically what we're talking about there um, as an aspect of our technical rescue capability. So that's just like a flavor. Inside of technical rescue, there's a bunch of different categories for, for what it is makes up a technical rescue specialist that we have training on. And, you know, that's everything from extrication to all this other stuff, but high angle or working in a mountainous environment is one of those things that, that we hang our hat on. And that could be anything from truly, you know, I've had a couple of scenarios where we've hung a pilot, but we've hung people over cliffs, you know, over 200 foot cliffs and you have some access that pilot. you have to somehow get to them, provide them that and then bring them up. The only way to do so is through very intricate rope systems and very sketchy. I'm terrified of heights, by the way. Like I hate, I what a hate terrible heights. job I, to be part of there, <laughs> dude. It's the worst. It is the worst. I'm the safest guy on a mountain you have ever seen. You know why I am triple clipped in and I'm like, <laughs> I'm like the team. I don't, I'm not the team leader. I turn into the team mom. I'm like, are you okay? You need to be safe. Are you clipped in? Like, Here's some I'm cookies. <laughs> Gee, I'm, hey guys, I brought orange slices. Is everybody yeah. feeling okay? Um, but for that technical rescue, that, that high angle piece, it's super complicated and you'll die. Tons of people die climbing every single year. Now imagine doing that in an environment where you could get shot 
<laughs> like, and that's, that sounds like hyperbole, but imagine being on a 10, 12,000 foot cliff in Afghanistan and somebody slips and falls and now they're on a ledge that's, you know, overlooking a huge drop and you're in combat and you have to figure out how to find an anchor, do it tactically, access that person and get them. And sometimes it's, it's not even, um, you know, that high angle, you, you think high angle all the time, but we, when we go on ships, we, there's a lot of stories of guys that have to access ships and we have to use our rope knowledge in order to bring a patient up. If, if that patient is out or in a litter or whatever, we have to find a way to navigate through there. And you, you do it with your, with your high angle skills or, or your rope rescue skills and building rope systems and being lead climbers and all of these other things play into it. So that's a, a very specific skill set that we have. And, and you're totally right. When I explain what a PJ is to people. I, I don't compare us to anybody else because again, comparison, yeah, comparison breeds adversarial talk, right? Like I don't compare us. I'm, I'm not, it's, it's common for people to be like, well, we're like Navy SEALs, but we have medicine or it, well, it's like being an army ranger medic, but we do this rope thing too. That's it's not true. We shoot, we move, we communicate, we lead. That's what all special operators do. But then we have gold standard technical rescue. We are technical rescue specialists. We know how to access patients in environments of all types, and we're the masters at it. And then we provide gold gold level combat medicine. It's funny. I, I didn't even think about that. Like, I, you know, I've, I've been on ships and stuff like that, and we've been doing other training on ships, but I've never... Uh, I've never been on a ship during an exercise or in real world where we put a medical scenario or there is a medical scenario that is not, you know, on the, on the deck. Um, so I, I didn't even consider, you know, doing rope systems work that, but I mean, like we talk about, I, I know that you and I were on an exercise out in Norway, uh, me, you, Ibby and, uh, Nick the Bod, you know, Nick we, the Bod, yeah. yeah, we got a notification and this was an exercise notification that an F-16 pilot had punched out, um, somewhere in the mountains. We jump into a frozen lake DZ. We snowshoe, which maybe we should have done something Terrible. else. Terrible. That, that was movement. A, yeah, I, that was I remember awful. looking at, I remember looking at Nick during that movement and we had to switch people that were breaking and going up over the, you know, the four or five terrain features. I remember looking at Nick one time and he looked at me and he was just like, yeah, this is it, that real. This is that real stuff, huh? And I was yeah. just like, it, and and full disclosure, because I'm gonna be transparent, because everybody knows that I I just I'm self deprecating, but like the one guy that did not break trail the entire time because the snow was way too high was this guy. So imagine if you had to, like for everybody out there, imagine if you had to break trail, except it was up to your waist, whereas everybody else, it was up to their knees, right? Mm -hmm. That is why I did not break trail. <laughs> okay. But yeah. I mean, you know, we, we did that movement in the mountains up to this cliff and they no kidding hung a dude over the side of a cliff. Like that's mm -hmm. like, that's one that's ballsy for that guy. Like kudos to him. But I mean, usually if we're going to hang somebody over a cliff, we're going to hang a dummy. But they no right. kid hung a dude yeah. off the side of the cliff. And then so rescued him. I did the controller part. Um, and then I can't remember if I did or it'd be, but it doesn't matter. It, you know, great exercise, great fun, real world experience, uh, or th that translate in the real world. So great time. So yeah. moving on and, to the other one. Oh, what's well, up? real quick. Yeah, real quick. I just want to make it like make a point. Like that's what makes pararescue and, and really ST, like that's what makes ASOC different. There's tons of, of really, really good rescue teams that work out in the real world, right? Those guys can use quads to drive all their gear in. They can drive, there's no weight requirements, whatever. We had what we jumped in with, 
we had to rescue that guy after that movement. And we had to like, by the way, we had food, water for 72 hours. We had sleep systems. We had our own medical gear. We had our own radios. And oh, by the way, we had a minimal amount of technical rescue equipment, in this case, high angle rescue equipment, but we had to jump it in, right? That's when, when people are like, oh, well, you guys are rescue specialists. You know, that's, that's a whole thing. Listen, everything's man packable. You have to be able to do it out of your run. Yeah. That, that whole, everything's man packable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. Moving on. So swift water rescue, um, that is something that yep. I, I believe is also pretty inherent. I mean, you, you know, in the civilian sector, you know, you have certain, I think, I think there would be firefighters or maybe even their wildlife service, something like that, that are trained in it. But this is definitely something that is inherent to pararescue. Yeah. And it's part of our upgrade. This isn't something that we just go do like, no kidding. In your five level upgrade, you have to go to a swift water course. Um, and oh, by the way, we do all kinds of water environments. Cause again, we don't get to pick where these problems are. And if you think about why do you do swift water rescue? Some of the most, um, some of the most dangerous things that you can do is cross a river, especially on attack, you know, in combat in tactics in anything you want to talk about when you start talking about, we have to cross this river. That's a, that's a whole thing. You need somebody that can look at this and go, okay, this is the best part. And here's where we're going to put our safety. And here's where, here's where the throw bag should go. And here's where we're going to tie back and stay away from this area because it's dangerous. We have to be able to do that. And then if somebody gets trapped or if some, something is happening, like, you know, stuck in a strainer, or if we have to do a body recovery, you'll, you'll kill the rescuer period. Like you will, you will lose the guy that goes into that unless you have extensive training. So it just goes with the anytime, anywhere mindset that we have. And, uh, you know, I had a, a good input from a commander of one of the SMUs that I, I shared an apartment with for like two weeks because he was there and I was there and we were sharing the same apartment while we we're doing stuff. He had a really good quote about PJs that I've always internalized is he's like, you know, if there's anybody that I want at a table, I want a PJ there because for 90% of my problems, you guys have the answer for every single thing that I like all these wacky contingencies. Hey, I got to cross a river. How are we going to do this? PJ, what you got? Hey, we're going to be walking in this mountain. We might need to rope everybody together to get across this. Hey, PJ, what you got? We're going to cross a glacier. Hey, PJ, what you got? Always got carabiners. That's what you guys got. So many carabiners. Always always carrying carabiners. Oh, look at What's this rope for? (laughs) Yeah, that's that's the joke for you guys that don't know they're free. Always. PJs have always got carabiners. Always. Oh, you're a PJ? Okay. Name every not ever then. Yeah. <laughs> Build me a three to one like that. Yeah. Immediately go. Yeah. So um, the other the other aspect that I think is very um, PJ specific is is kind of the ocean rescue. I mean, yeah, you have you have the Navy um, SAR, you have the Coasties as well. But um, when we talk about you know middle of the ocean nobody's out there you're kind of your your duck butt mission type set i mean throwing out uh, uh you know a ram z or a ram b out in the middle of the ocean because whether it's you know an aircraft went down or there's a six sailor or a capsized vessel or something like that like that is very pj specific yeah and it happens all the time so um you know i'll just tell my, my own story. So 2000, I think 2009 or 2010, I think it had to be 2009. I had just gotten to the 321st. We were training uh, a little bit down South. I think I'd been a PJ for about six months. So I guess this had to be about 2000, 2009, but there was a sick sailor that was in the North sea that was, you know, 400 miles off the coast of Ireland or off the coast of England. So in a C-130, we had people with two Rams packages that were ready to throw those boats out and then go and, and go to the thing. And then I was on the sixties 
And just because of weather, the 60s ended up being the people to do it. So we went out into the ocean, open ocean. They hoisted us down. We packaged this guy up, provided him medical care, came back up and, and brought him back home. But when you look at some of the things that the Moffat guys have done, the Moffat guys just had um, one of the most um, intricate rescues that they did where they actually jumped from the minimum level that they could accept for risk, flew, were recovered by that bigger vessel. And then they spent five days treating a traumatic amputation of a guy that had, he, he essentially got his leg trapped in between two huge pieces of equipment. I think it was two boats that they were, they were putting on. Um, and they had to jump a PJ team in there, but we, we have a long history of that open ocean. When you look at what the, the, um, Cocoa beach and NASA space shuttle mission looks like the earth is 70% water. The the, if something happens with a manned space shuttle, it's probably going to land in the water. So they train to in rough seas, with minimum personnel, getting to that person, number one, is sometimes half the battle. And then number two, being able to work in that environment is really, really hard. But again, it's one of those things where we train to it and, and those specific teams that have those specific missions, they train to it at such a high level. And you, <laughs> like that, you just glossed over it. So we, you know, PJ, we talked about it in a different episode and we'll talk about it again in this one, but like PJ trauma, um, Probably, and this is my opinion, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, probably not long-term field care. You guys do it, but that's not your bread and butter. Um, and man, for those guys to treat him for five days, that's, that's well, a long time. I'm going to call you down. That's, we've been focusing on long-term field care, like that tyranny of distance. Like it is, it is a huge thing. Like we, we focus on it way more because, and again, uh, not to compare, but you know, ranger medics are awesome at their field care. Okay. But I, I don't, I don't have a battalion of people with me. Like if you look at some of these missions, like guys have spent five, six, seven days, you know, there, there are missions even in, in Afghanistan where they were unable to be recovered for 48 hours, 72 hours. And they're managing that patient alone with no help for 72 hours. Like that's a completely different level of care, but you know, we focus on it a lot and it is, it's, it's a completely different game and you have to be able to step your game up. And Oh, by the way, you're going to jump there with a small team with every, and you have to like, you got what you got. If yep. you don't bring those things to support that patient, the patient's going to die. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a lot of pressure, but uh, you know, and then, <laughs> is, going, yeah. and then going back to the, the SpaceX NASA thing, right. Um, man, the, the ocean is unforgiving, just like nature is unforgiving. Um, and the, terrifying. Yeah. I'm also scared of the ocean. <laughs> Funny enough, that, <laughs> Funny there's, enough. A, there's a lot of things that are under me when I'm up on the surface swimming. There's a lot of to, things. <laughs> I just have to pretend. So Brian and I, and I, I'll, I'll let Brian tell this story too, but I distinctly remember being about 20 miles off the, the coast of uh, San Diego. It was completely dark at night. We were doing work with the helicopters. The helicopters push off. We're in 10 foot rolling seas. We're lit up like Christmas trees. So you can see us. Well, guess what outside of tracks? Sharks. What's off the coast? <laughs> What's off the coast of California? Great whites. Big so there, there are Brian and I at night, uh, just in great white territory, lit up like Christmas trees with helicopters that sound like a school of fish. And I, I I'm just like, you know what? This is it. I just got to pretend there's nothing else here. But there it is. That's the most intimidating part is one, you're not at the top of the food chain anymore. And then you have no idea what's underneath you, but you just got to, you no. got to be okay with it. You just got to go, hey, go, all right, whatever. Okay. No well, big deal. Here we go. Yeah. Here can't, do any, can't do anything about it anyway. So <laughs> right. may as well not worry about it. <laughs> but yeah. So yeah. And, and that's the thing, you know, you get, 
um, sick sailor on a vessel. You get the, the NASA thing, uh, manned mission. Like they need help. You're going out. You know, the weather yeah. isn't pr- probably just because things went bad and that's just the way things go. The weather's probably not going to be ideal. Neither is the sea state, but you got to get out there because that's what we do. Well, and if you think about it too, I explain this to young guys, it's never going to be a good time to go. People don't call you for help. Uh, like people don't think forward and think, hey, this is going to be a problem because they would have been able to avoid the problem, right? The weather's going to be terrible. The combat situation is going to be the worst possible that you can ever go into. The patients are going to be close to dying by the time you get there. Like you're, you're, you're going to be so far down. By the time they finally go, oh God, we need the PJ team. It's, it's already the worst scenario possible. It's too already late, brother. too late, brother. Let's go. Like yeah. you, don't, you don't get to choose the time and the place, right? Like you're going to have to go to that scenario. Yeah. Uh, and you know, that's, <laughs> It's not, I, I don't say this to denigrate uh, all the amazing actions that have happened in Afghanistan, Iraq, Africa, and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, all these decorations that you hear about, it's, it's, it's because things went wrong and people got put into situations that were not good and they did extraordinary things. That's all it is, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. th- again, that's not diminishing what the folks have done, but it, it is because a bad situation happened. It's just reality of it. But um, so parting shots about personnel recovery. Listen, personnel recovery is um, it, it, it's my favorite mission, right? It's what I connected to the entire time. And it's why I wanted to be a PJ. Personnel recovery is an overarching term, right? Like we talked about, it can be a million different things. The reason why personnel recovery is so awesome and the, the reason why I love it is because you have to be able to think on your feet and fix problems. It is the biggest problem set. When I look at you and I go, this is impossible, pararescue men look you back in the face and they go, no, it's not, watch this. You go, there's a guy on, on top of a mountain, he's dying, he's hung over the side of a, of a cliff, you can't access him, you're gonna have to hold on to this patient for 72 hours, you're gonna have to fight your way in or hopefully sneak your way in get this guy and then somehow get out. And oh, by the way, the only way that you can get in is to hey-ho. Holy cow, that is a problem set that I want to try to solve. Um, and when you look at you know all these other things, hey, there was, a, there was an earthquake. We have lost 200 people and 100 of those people are trapped in a high-rise building and there's nobody else that can access these people. Watch this. Watch how I can affect this scenario. So that's the best part of being inside of the personnel recovery area or working personnel recovery for me is that yeah, it sucks because you deal with a lot of death. You deal with a lot of times where the situation is too bad. You couldn't help and you lose patience and, and you know, that sucks, but I got to be honest with you. There's nothing more rewarding than dedicating your life to the simple motto that we have, which is, you know, that others may live. I'm here to respond no matter what time, what place, what situation. And I'm going to go there knowing full well that my job is to get them out and I might not come out. That's pretty righteous, man. I really dig that. And on that note, uh, we'll wrap it up. Make sure you uh, slide into our DMs or shoot us an email at info at onesready.com. Visit us on our website, buy some merch. We've got a whole mixture of t-shirts, hoodies, hats, stickers, all that kind of good stuff. Uh, and then if you're following us on YouTube or if you're watching this on YouTube, you know, like, subscribe, hit the notification button, and then make sure you're following all four of us. Well, Follow all four of us and the Ones Ready account on uh, Instagram. Appreciate you tuning in. Later. Cheers. Train hard.